Revelation chapter 16. All right, we're talking about tonight Armageddon or the end of the world. Now, here's the thing that I, has kind of struck me as I was thinking about this, is that our country, not just believers, but our country is fascinated with the end of the world. And you can see that in pop culture. I, I remember the story, many of you remember the story as well, about a radio program that caused mass hysteria, right? Because they thought Orson Welles, War of the Worlds, was actual news. Thought they were being invaded. And people literally thought, now, can you imagine if somebody pulled off a hoax like that today and the kind of things that would happen? They were, they, you know, even back then, people were so fascinated with the end of the world. Um, there has never been a generation of Christians that have focused so much on the end of the world as what we call the American generation of Christians. From about 1850 till today, no other group of believers concentrated as much on revelation and the end of the world as believers do today. One of my favorite um, preachers to listen to is a guy named David Jeremiah. Anybody ever heard David Jeremiah? And I love David Jeremiah. And some of you are going to get mad at me for saying this, but I wish David Jeremiah would quit preaching about it. Because I love what he does, everything else. And it seems like every time I turn on David Jeremiah these days, it's the end of the world stuff. And, and I, I'm glad I'm, people are saying the same thing about me on Wednesday night. So I understand we're going to get through Revelation. But, you, you know, I, we focus on it a lot. In fact, I'm convinced that a way that we can know people are really interested in the world is because TV preachers in general preach on it all the time. If you took the book of Revelation, it's not 166th of the Bible because there are books that are smaller and bigger. But if you just say that it is one out of 66 books, and even if you include the book of Daniel and you include part of Jesus' teaching, you still have a small percentage of books that teach directly about the end times, right? And yet my guess is if you turned on television preaching, it would take up 30 to 40% of television preaching. And guys that aren't preaching about that are preaching about health and wealth stuff. How to get rich or how to get blessed. You know, instead of other parts of the gospel. Another way that I know is, like I said, the pop culture. And I got to thinking, and I want you to help me with this. What are some, what are some movies that are about the end of the world? Armageddon, right? I posted something on Twitter today, but I didn't think many people would get it. But... Uh, mainly because our church feed actually only has about 40 people following it. But I put, uh, ever wondered what the Bible says about Armageddon? Come tonight and find out. And then I put, as you put a hashtag on Twitter, like something funny at the end, I put, don't want to miss a thing, because that's the song from the movie Armageddon. But the same summer Armageddon came out, or right around there, was a movie called Deep Impact that was both about asteroids coming to destroy the Earth. Anything else? What other movies in recent years? 2012, right? Because the Mayans, apparently their calendar runs out in December. And so how can we continue to have a world if the Mayans don't have us on the calendar for that time, if we're not scheduled for that? So 2012, you've got Armageddon, you've got Deep Impact. The day after tomorrow. Carol is giving us some Independence Day. Independence Day, right? Um War of the Worlds, the remake with Tom Cruise. I Am Legend, which had Will Smith in it. I decided, I wonder if there are any coming out this summer. And guess what? There are. Biggest movie kind of previewed, or one of the bigger movies previewed for this summer is a movie called The Avengers. 
The Avengers are Captain America, Hulk, not Hulk Hogan, the wrestler, but the actual Hulk. Um, the Green Hulk, right? Not the one that wears the yellow bandana. But you have uh, and uh, Iron Man and Thor and Black Widow, and they are fighting against aliens that are coming to destroy the world. There's a movie coming out the next week called Battleship. Anybody ever played the game Battleship? This movie is loosely based on the game Battleship. Now, can you think of a more boring game to base a movie on than Battleship? Ideas have truly run out. Well, somehow the game Battleship has been turned into a movie about a battleship fending off aliens coming to destroy the world. Men in Black 3 is coming out about a time traveler that goes back in time to save the future from the end of the world. There's a movie coming out called Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. And apparently the world's going to end, everybody knows it, and two people try to become friends in their last days. It's a real encouraging one. And here's one that's coming out this, this winter. Y'all may not be aware of this one yet, but you can, go, you can go check it out, okay? It's called Rise of the Guardians. And Rise of the Guardians is a movie, it's a cartoon animated movie, about this threat that is coming to destroy the world, and the people that are going to protect it are the people that have been disguising themselves for years as Santa Claus, and the Easter Bunny, and the Tooth Fairy, and the Sandman. The picture of the poster is of Santa Claus with his arms crossed, and he looks like a weightlifter. He doesn't have a jolly belly. He is a guardian of the earth. Now, the thing is, I think part of the reason people are so interested in the end of the world is because we realize, first of all, we're on a track of destruction. And secondly, I think God puts this hope within all of us that it's got to be more than this. And what we're going to see in Revelation chapter 16 is the end of the world destruction movie to end all end of the world destruction movies. Revelation chapter 16 is that place in Scripture that tells us about the end of the world. Recently, a a world-famous scientist by the name of Stephen Hawking, everybody ever heard of Stephen Hawking? Stephen Hawking said in an interview that the human race is likely to be wiped out in the next millennium. So if you're, you know, for those of us that are alive today, if it goes away in 700 years, not a big deal, according to Stephen Hawking, but we've got to be looking forward. And he says it's not that we're going to kill ourselves with nuclear weapons or even with terrorist actions. He says that somewhere, somehow, someday, we're going to create a virus that we can't control, which we didn't even talk about movies like Contagion and Outbreak that have that idea. And he says the only hope for mankind is to establish colonies in space. And that's what we've got to figure out. Well, he's right about the fact that the world is going to come to an end. You can't necessarily follow what he describes, but God gives us the formula of what's going to happen. And Revelation chapter 16 is that. It is the last of the three series of judgments in Revelation. We had the seven seals, then the seven trumpets, and now we have the seven bowls. Now this is probably the last time you'll hear me say this. 
But you remember that the seven seals, the seventh seal is the seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet is the seventh, seven bowls. So the seven bowls are part of the seven trumpets that are part of the seven seals. Okay, And so it's that telescoping effect. And so what we have here is the end of the end, the last days, the finishing thing. And we're going to accelerate. In fact, the seven trumpets, the seven seals, took a couple of chapters to kind of lay out. These seven bowls come one verse right after another. They just happen. It just describes what happens and then it moves on to the next one. Now what is tragic and almost unbelievable about this passage of Scripture in Revelation chapter 16 is this. Is that in the midst of this, people will become more defiant towards God than they were before the judgment began. Unbelievers, it tells us in Revelation chapter 16, three different times, will blaspheme God, will speak out against Him, and will decide, even though they know the punishment is coming from God, that they're not going to worship Him. The seven plagues that come with the seven bowls are similar it's somewhat to the plagues God brought on the Egyptians and on the ones that we have seen in the trumpets. However, the Egyptian plagues were localized to the Egyptians. The trumpet plagues were localized to only a third of the earth. The bowl plagues are worldwide. Revelation chapter 16 says this. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels. Here's something interesting. I didn't see this in any of the uh, the commentaries, so I may not be on board with what is being said here. But I think Revelation does this unbelievable job of reintroducing Genesis. In the book of Genesis, God creates. In the book of Revelation, God tears down to... Recreate or restore. Okay, How did God create in Genesis chapter 1? He spoke. And so God speaks and the world comes into existence. What we have in Revelation that's interesting when you look at this passage. In Revelation 16, six times in this chapter, a loud voice is discussed. Six times in Revelation, it speaks of a loud voice. And there's no mistaking that the loud voice comes from God. And so I think it is interesting, just the power of God, that He speaks and the world comes into existence, and He speaks again and the world goes into destruction. He is judging the world in the same way He created it. It's interesting. By the way, just for your knowledge, this is kind of a neat thing. I don't talk about Greek a whole lot, but... um, the word loud voice that you see there in the Greek is megulus phonus. You ever heard of a megaphone? Megulus phonus. Okay. Twenty times in the book of Revelation it's mentioned. Six of those it's mentioned right here. The voice of God, for He is the only one in the temple. Remember in chapter 15 He said, I'm not leaving the temple until my judgment is complete. So the voice of God comes out of the temple saying to the seven angels, and He gives them two distinctive commands. Go and pour the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. 
Go and pour are both imperatives of command. The fierce and anger and just judgment of God is about to be poured upon the earth. It will be the most severe and devastating judgment the earth will ever experience. What started in heaven has now descended upon the earth. What began in the heavenly realm is now being visited upon the people of earth. What starts with God ends with man. And this is what they say. The first angel went and poured. I love how God says, do what? Go and pour. And the angel goes and pours. At this moment in history, God's will is being done perfectly on earth as it is in heaven. He poured out his bowl on the land and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. It's interesting because this disease is severe, but it's also very specific. And it's the, I've never had a good sore. Have you ever had a good sore? But the literal translation here is that it was a bad, or they were bad and evil sores. I've never had a good sore. I don't want a bad and an evil sore. Now the word sore there means a boil, an abscess, an ulcer. It describes, this is going to be nice for y'all that just finished eating, an incurable, open, oozing, painful sore. There may not be a more descriptive word than oozing. All right, And it says, who has these sores? What's that? The people that were marked by the beast, that worship the beast. So here's an important thing to see. The people that have these sores are the ones that have rejected God. But this is just as important to see. It doesn't say some of them will have it. It doesn't say a portion of them will have it. The idea is every follower of the beast, everyone who has rejected God, will have these sores, and they are the only ones that will have them. It is men who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Only unbelievers, but it's also all unbelievers are affected by the incurable, opening, oozing, painful sores. Zechariah 14.12 gives this kind of description about something that may be around this day. It's not directly tied. Now this will be the plague that with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongue will rot in their mouth. That sounds like fun, doesn't it? So God comes, and the first thing that happens in verse 2, they pour out the first bowl. Well, in the other chapters, what we've seen is then there'd be some discussion about what the effects were. Not here, right? Immediately what happens? Verse 3. I think it's also interesting... That God doesn't stop to say, okay, you're done with one. Now, secondly, you go. You know, in other ones, there were loud voices that would come and announce, or an angel would stand up and say, now it is time. Here it just happens. God says it, and they start falling. Verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man. Notice that description. It's not just like regular blood, right? It's the blood of what? A dead man. If they made the movie Biblical Armageddon, it would not be a G-rated movie. And every living thing in the sea died. 
The bowls are catastrophic in their own right. But when you begin to follow them one by one by one, rapidly, the effects culminate in building upon one after the other. The judgment here recalls the first Egyptian plague and the second trumpet. And the idea here is that the blood is of that of a dead man. The sea becomes coagulated and rotting, thick and dark. The oceans, which occupy approximately 70% of the earth's surface, become a worldwide pool of blood. There was a story of something that happened in fall of 1947 in a community called Venice, Florida. Residents got up that day and on the shore were thousands of dead fish and there was this almost um, stinging, choking gas in the air. Some thought they had been attacked. They thought there was nerve gas being released. Others thought a chemical spill had happened. But scientists discovered it was something called a red tide. Although this was the first specific documentation or scientific documentation of the catastrophic event along the Florida Gulf, reports of similars had gone all the way back to the mid-1800s. Red tides are caused, I know you know this, but I'll, I'll remind you. Red tides are caused by several species of marine phytoplankton. That's what you were thinking, right Cliff? Phytoplankton are, I know you know, but they're microscopic plant-like cells that produce potent chemical toxins, potent neurotoxins. These toxins cause extensive fish kills, contaminate shellfish, and create severe respiratory irritation to humans. As the red tide blooms, the density of red tide organisms increase to several million cells in each liter of water. And the affected area expands to many square miles. The result is a mass of deadly toxin leaving a wake of dead and dying fish. As the bloom approaches the shoreline, we begin to see and feel the effects. Dead fish, characteristic burning sensation of the eyes and nose, and a dry, choking cough. Now, I don't know, I'm not saying that chapter 16 describes a red tide, but if it describes a red tide-like thing, it will be not just in the Gulf along the shoreline. It'll be worldwide. The little translation says that every soul of life died in the ocean. One of the things that we like to do with the kids sometimes is to watch um, the Discovery Channel did a, a, a series a couple of years ago called um, um, The Blue Planet. And it was all about ocean life. And it is amazing the amount of life in the ocean. And you read this and you realize that it's gone. Now think of the catastrophic nature of this. You've got all unbelievers with painful boils oozing all over the place. Seventy percent of the earth becomes a coagulated mess with death everywhere. Verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowls on the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. Why is that significant? Nothing to drink. Just think about if I drive, think about the drive I took today. I, I went and dropped, uh, you know, went by Madison Creek. We dropped Eli at school today. 
On the way to Madison Creek, I would have passed Madison Creek. So passing it, imagine it like blood. I drove downtown to go visit the hospitals. And driving downtown, I crossed over the, or saw the Cumberland River there, crossed over it, drove past it on a couple of occasions. Imagine it just completely like blood. This scripture says we'd seen where a third or a half or a quarter. This is every fresh water stream, river, lake, tributary in the world. And look what people say when it happens. Verse 5. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy Ones. Anybody have the King James Bible here? Do you? Okay. Miss Joan, what, when it says you are just in these judgments around that area, you who are and who were, does it have anything else after that? Yeah. The King James Version has who are, who were, and who shall be or is to come. That's not in the original language. That's not in the original Greek. And it's significant that it's not in the original Greek. What most people think happened with the King James Version is people had been reading through this and as they're interpreting it and they're translating it, well, naturally what comes next is who is to come. The issue here is, though, the original Greek never says that. And here's why it's important. Because God is no longer the one who was and who is and is to come. He is the God who was and is. He has come. When we get here, He is. There's no is to come. It's here. And so... That's one of those little small things in the King James Version that doesn't seem significant if you're reading it. But in the original language, it would have been significant to the people. You can almost imagine as John, as this letter is being written, and the people are standing in front of the group, and they're describing what's happening to the people who are persecuting them and hurting them, and they're going to suffer and things are going to happen. And then they hear, because it is the God who was and who is, And they're expecting is to come. And then the realization comes over them. Wait a minute. In this scenario, He's here. There's no more come quickly, Lord Jesus. It is you have come and you are making it right. And they say, now think about what's happened. Unbelievers have boils all over them. The sea is like the blood of a dead man. The rivers and the lakes are like blood. And the people are yelling, Yeah! This is awesome! That's what they're saying, right? You are right, God! Amen! Keep going! You have judged for they... Basically, they're saying they're getting what they deserve. They have shed the blood of your saints and your prophets and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. Now, just to be honest, as American Christians today who have very little persecution, this sounds pretty morbid to us and how could you ever cheer that? If you're in a society where the people of God are randomly attacked, killed, imprisoned, you start shouting when people say they're going to get what they deserve for doing to God's people what they did to God's people. In fact... You're going to be shouting if you're already there with the Lord someday too. Because what does it say? And I heard the altar respond. Now, did the altar itself respond? No. But gathered around and under the altar are those who have come into the presence of God that have lived their lives. And they shout, yes, 
Lord God Almighty. Amen. The true and just are your judgments. The fresh water was already in short supply due to the first I mean, the third trumpet and the drought brought on. It, this Egyptian plague theme comes back. And they begin to see what is happening. And the people say, it is time, God. It has been past time. We are glad it is happening. Keep going. Make it right. We see that the judgment is righteous. But we also see that it's retributive. They shed the blood of God's servants. There are servants of God whose blood is being shed today. There are people who follow the Lord that will lose their life or their freedom or their family or their job today. And then they are excited that these people are drinking the blood of the wrath of God. They shed the blood of God's servants. They drink the blood of God's wrath. They deserve it. Because God is Lord God Almighty. God is true and righteous. Genesis 18.25 says, Far be it from thee to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, God. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly with people? Psalm 19.9 says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Psalm 119 says, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are righteous, and that faithfulness thou hast afflicted me. There is always reason and logic to God's judgment. There is a rightness to what He does. I intended tonight to go through all seven but I could tell in 4 o'clock and now, we're not going to make it through all seven. So I'm going to cut it off here. Okay, and We'll pick up here next week. I want you to see, though, how this ending, this Armageddon, is building quickly towards the end. I mean, we're in chapter 16. It, take your book of Revelation and just kind of look over a little bit. If you just look at the headlines, which is never really a good way to just kind of summarize the Bible, but we'll do it anyways. Immediately after this is the woman and the beast. That'll be fun to talk about that. Then we talk about the fall of Babylon. And then in chapter 19, so we are a couple of chapters away from Hallelujah, the multitude singing, the rider on the white horse, chapter 20, the thousand year reign, Satan's destruction, the dead being judged, Jerusalem descending, the river of life, and Jesus is coming soon. Amen. Amen. So we're at the end here. We've, we've been walking through this. We're getting to the end. And we're getting to the part where if you were in that room in Ephesus, as they're describing what is happening in this book, you are getting more and more and more excited. I showed my boys one of the Rocky movies for the first time the other day. Now actually, I didn't show them the whole movie. I showed them the part from the end of training through the fight. And it was Rocky 3. And I don't know if you remember Rocky 3, but it, it was a particularly good Rocky. I mean, there are, what, 14 of them now? 18? Uh, there's, I think there's six now. It was a particularly good one. And in it, he fought, I call him B.A. Barabbas from the A-Team, also known as Mr. T. But in the movie, he's Clubber Lang. 
Eli was watching it with me. And as we're watching it, Eli doesn't know who Rocky is, and we just start playing it. I haven't given him the full treatment of what it is. I said, just sit down and watch this. We've got a few minutes. Watch it with me. And there was that point where he was running on the beach. I don't know if you remember this or not. Just act like you do if you don't. He's running on the beach, and, and his trainer is now Apollo Creed, who he fought in the first fight. And the goal is to beat Apollo in a race on the beach. And you can tell the first time he tries it, he didn't get anywhere close. And then he's chasing chickens, and he's uh, hitting backs. And by the end of it, he runs and he finishes, and it's one of the most awkward hugs in movie history. They're there, and the water splashing up, and they're grabbing and hugging. They're so excited. And then, as they do in Rocky, you hear, ding! And they go to the scene. They're in the boxing ring. And Rocky comes in. He had already been beaten by this guy. And then Clubber Lang comes down, and they start fighting. And by the end of the fight, when Rocky wins, Eli is no longer sitting calmly on the couch. He is up. And Luke has joined the thing, which Luke really doesn't need any encouragement to be hyper, but he got it. And by the end of the movie, they're throwing punches at Clubber Lang. And when Rocky wins and they count out Clubber Lang, both boys' arms go up. And you realize why those movies are so good, right? Even if they're not really cinematic masterpieces. It's because that swelling, that building of the victory. And even when you know the victory is inevitable, the swelling of the moment to get there makes it exciting when it finally arrives. We're in the swelling moment in chapter 16 and 17. The book of Revelation is basically we've been knocked down for 12 rounds but in round 13 we start turning the tide and round 14 we start winning the fight and around 15 Jesus Christ returns and the victory is ours. And you can imagine those people who were scared to walk out of their door because of what might come for being a follower of Jesus. What they felt as they read what we're going to read over the next few weeks. And the victory of God swells to the moment of climactic conclusion. It's the greatest story that has ever been told. And we're going to read the end of it real soon. Amen?